Book One, Chapters Five, Six, and Seven of Camilla. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine Blashford. Camilla, or A Picture of Youth by Fanny Burney. Chapter Five: Schooling of a Young Gentleman. Mrs. Tyrold expressed much astonishment that her husband could afford any countenance to this new plan. Your expectations from it, she cried, can be no higher than my own. You have certainly some influence with your brother. Why then will you suffer him thus egregiously to expose himself? I cannot protect his pride, answered Mr. Tyrold, at the expense of his comfort. His faculties want some object, his thoughts some employment. Inaction, bodily and intellectual, pervading the same character, cannot but fix disgust upon every stage and every state of life. Vice alone is worse than such double inertion. Where mental vigour can be kept alive without offence to religion and virtue, innocence as well as happiness is promoted, and the starter of difficulties with regard to the means which point to such an end inadvertently risks both. To save the mind from preying inwardly upon itself, it must be encouraged to some outward pursuit. There is no other way to elude apathy or escape discontent, none other to guard the temper from that quarrel with itself, which ultimately ends in quarrelling with all mankind. But may you not, by refusing to send him your son, induce him to seek recreation in some more rational way? Recreation, my dear Georgiana, must be spontaneous. Bidden pleasures fly the perversity of our tastes. Let us take care, then, scrupulously, of our duties, but suffer our amusements to take care of themselves. A project, a pastime such as this, is at least as harmless as it is hopeless, since the utmost sport of wit or acrimony of malice can only fasten a laugh upon it. And how few are the diversions of the rich and indolent that can so lightly be acquitted! Lionel, the new young student, speedily, though but little to her satisfaction, abetted the judgment of his mother. He was no sooner summoned to Cleves than, enchanted to find himself a fellow pupil with his uncle, he conceived the highest ideas of his own premature genius. And when this vanity, from the avowed ignorance of the artless baronet, subsided, it was only replaced by a sovereign contempt of his new associate. He made the most pompous display of his own little acquirements. He took every opportunity to ask questions of Sir Hugh, which he knew he could not answer. And he would sometimes, with an arch mock solemnity, carry his exercise to him and beg his assistance. Sir Hugh bore this juvenile impertinence with unshaken good humour. But the spirits of Lionel were too mutinous for such lenity. He grew bolder in his attacks and more fearless of consequences. And in a very short time, his uncle seemed to him little more than the butt at which he might level the shafts of his rising triumph. Till tired at length, though not angry, the baronet applied to Doctor Orkborne and begged he would teach him, out of hand, some small little smattering of Latin sentences by which he might make the young pedant think better of him. Doctor Orkborne complied and wrote him a few brief exercises, but these, after toiling day and night to learn, he pronounced so ill and so constantly misapplied that, far from impressing his fellow labourer with more respect, the moment he uttered a single word of his new lesson, the boy almost rolled upon the floor with convulsive merriment. Sir Hugh, with whom these phrases neither lost nor gained by mistaking one word for another, appealed to Doctor Orkborne to remedy what he conceived to be an unaccountable failure. Doctor Orkborne, absorbed in his new personal pursuit to which he daily grew more devoted, was earnest to be as little as possible interrupted, and therefore only advised him to study his last lesson before he pressed for anything new. Study, however, was unavailing, and he heard this injunction with despair. But finding it constantly repeated upon every application for help, he was seized with a horror of the whole attempt and begged to consult with Mister Tyrold. 
"'This gentleman you have recommended to me for my tutor,' he cried, "'is certainly a great scholar. "'I don't mean to doubt that the least in the world, being no judge, "'and he is complacent enough, too, considering all that. "'But yet I have rather a suspicion he is afraid I shall make no hand of it, "'which is a thing so disheartening to a person in the line of improvement, "'that to tell you the honest truth, I am thinking of giving the whole up at a blow. "'For, Lord, help me, what shall I be the better for knowing Latin and Greek? "'It's not worth a man's while to think of it after being a boy.' and so, if you please, I'd rather you take Lionel home again. Mr. Tyrold agreed, but asked what he meant to do further concerning the doctor. Why that, brother, is the very thing my poor ignorant head wants your advice for, because, as to that plan about our learning altogether, I see it won't do, for either the boys will grow up to be no better scholars than their uncle, which is to say none at all, or else they'll hold everybody cheap when they meet with a person knowing nothing, so I'll have no more hand in it, and I shall really be glad enough to get such a thing off my mind, for it's been weight enough upon it from the beginning. He then desired the opinion of Mr. Tyrold what step he should take to prevent the arrival of Clermont Linmere, whom, he said, he dreaded to see, being determined to have no more little boys about him for some time to come. Mr. Tyrold recommended resettling him at Eton, but Sir Hugh declared he could not possibly do that, because the poor little fellow had written him word he was glad to leave school. And I don't doubt, he added, but he'll make the best figure of us all, because I had him put in the right mode from the first, though I must needs own I had as leave to see him a mere dunce all his life, supposing I should live so long, which God forbid, in regard to his dying, as have him turn out a mere coxcomb of a pedant, laughing and grinning at everybody that can't spell a Greek noun. Mr. Tyrold promised to take the matter into consideration, but early the next morning the baronet again summoned him and joyfully made known that a scheme had come into his own head which answered all purposes. In the first place, he said, he had really taken so prodigious a dislike to learning that he was determined to send Clermont over the seas to finish his Greek and Latin, not because he was fond of foreign parts, but for fear, if he should let him come to Cleves, the great distaste he had now conceived against those sort of languages might disgust the poor boy from his book and he had most luckily recollected in the middle of the night that he had a dear friend, one Mr. Westwyn, who was going the very next month to carry his own son to Leipzig, which was just what had put the thought into his head, because by that means Claremont might be removed from one studying place to t'other without loss of time. But for all that, he continued, as this good gentleman here has been doing no harm, I won't have him become a sufferer for my changing my mind, and so not to affront him by giving him nothing to do, which would be like saying, you may go your ways, I intend he should try Indiana. Observing Mr. Tyrold now look with the extremest surprise, he added, To be sure, being a girl, it is rather out of the way, but as there is never another boy, what can I do? Besides, I shan't so much mind her getting a little learning, because she's not likely to make much hand of it. And this one thing, I can tell you, which I have learnt of my own accord, I'll never press a person to set about studying at my time of life as long as I live, knowing what a plague it is. Lionel returned to Etherington with his father, and the rest of the scheme was put into execution without delay. Mr. Westwyn conveyed Claremont from Eton to Leipzig, where he settled him with the preceptor and masters appointed for his own son, and Dr. Orkborne was desired to become the tutor of Indiana. At first, quitting his learned residence, the doctor might indignantly have blushed at the proposition of an employment so much beneath his abilities, but he now heard it without the smallest emotion, sedately revolving in his mind that his literary work would not be affected by the ignorance or absurdity of his several pupils. Chapter 6. Tuition of a Young Lady the fair Indiana participated not in the philosophy of her preceptor. The first mention of taking lessons produced an aversion unconquerable to their teacher, and the first question he asked her at the appointed hour for study was answered by a burst of tears. 
To Dr. Orkborne this sorrow would have proved no impediment to their proceeding, as he hardly noticed it, but Sir Hugh, extremely affected, kindly kissed her and said he would beg her off for this time. The next day, however, gave rise but to a similar scene, and the next which followed would precisely have resembled it, had not the promise of some new finery of attire dispersed the pearly drops that were preparing to fall. The uncommon beauty of Indiana had made her infancy adored, and her childhood indulged by almost all who had seen her. The brilliant picture she presented to the eye by her smiles and her spirits rendered the devastation caused by crying, pouting, or fretfulness so striking and so painful to behold, that not alone her uncle but every servant in the house and every stranger who visited it granted to her lamentations whatever they demanded to relieve their own impatience at the loss of so pleasing an image. Accustomed, therefore, never to weep without advantage, she was in the constant habit of giving unbridled vent to her tears upon the smallest contradiction, well knowing that not to spoil her pretty eyes by crying was the current maxim of the whole house. Unused by this means to any trouble or application, the purpose tuition of Dr. Orkborne appeared a burden to her intolerable, yet weeping, her standing resource, was with him utterly vain, her tears were unimportant to one who had taken no notice of her smiles, and intent upon her own learned ruminations, he never even looked at her. Bribery, day after day, could procure but a few instants' attention, given so unwillingly, and so speedily withdrawn, that trinkets, dress, and excursions were soon exhausted, without the smallest advancement. The general indulgence of the baronet made partial favours of small efficacy, and Indiana was sooner tired of receiving than he of presenting his offerings. She applied, therefore, at length to the governess, whose expostulations she knew by experience were precisely what Sir Hugh most sedulously aimed to avoid. Miss Margland was a woman of family and fashion, but reduced through the gaming and extravagance of her father to such indigence that, after sundry failures in higher attempts, she was compelled to acquiesce in the good offices of her friends, which placed her as a governess in the house of Sir Hugh. To Indiana, however, she was but nominally a touchress. Neglected in her own education, there was nothing she could teach, though born and bred in the circle of fashion, she imagined she had nothing to learn. And while a mind proudly shallow kept her unacquainted with her own deficiencies, her former rank in society imposed an equal ignorance of them upon Sir Hugh. But notwithstanding, he implicitly gave her credit for possessing whatever she assumed. He found her of a temper so unpleasant and so irritable to offence that he made it a rule never to differ from her. The irksomeness of this restraint induced him to keep as much as possible out of her way, though respect and pity for her birth and her misfortunes led him to resolve never to part with her till Indiana was married. The spirit of Miss Margland was as haughty as her intellects were weak, and her disposition was so querulous that, in her constant suspicion of humiliation, she seemed always looking for an affront and ready primed for a contest. She seized with pleasure the opportunity offered her by Indiana of remonstrating against this new system of education, readily allowing that any accomplishment beyond what she had herself acquired would be completely a work of supererogation. She represented dictatorially her objections to the baronet. Miss Linmere, she said, though both beautiful and well brought up, could never cope with so great a disadvantage as the knowledge of Latin. "'Consider, sir,' she cried, "'what an obstacle it will prove to her making her way in the great world, "'when she comes to be of a proper age for thinking of an establishment. "'What gentleman will you ever find that will bear with a learned wife, "'except some mere downright fogram that no young lady of fashion could endure? 
She then spoke of the danger of injuring her beauty by study, and ran over all the qualifications really necessary for a young lady to attain, which consisted simply of an enumeration of all she had herself attempted, a little music, a little drawing, and a little dancing, which should all, she added, be but slightly pursued, to distinguish a lady of fashion from an artist. Sir Hugh, a good deal disturbed because unable to answer her, thought it would be best to interest Dr. Orkborne in his plan, and to beg him to reconcile her to its execution— he sent, therefore, a message to the doctor to beg to speak with him immediately. Dr. Orkbourne promised to wait upon him without delay, but he was at that moment hunting for a passage in a Greek author, and presently forgot both the promise and the request. Sir Hugh, concluding nothing but sickness could detain him, went to his apartment, where, finding him perfectly well, he stared at him a moment, and then sitting down, begged him to make no apology, for he could tell his business there as well as anywhere else. He gave a long and copious relation of the objections of Miss Margland, earnestly begging Dr. Orkbourne would save him from such another harangue, it being bad for his health, by undertaking to give her the proper notion of things himself. The doctor, who had just found the passage for which he had been seeking, heard not one word that he said. Sir Hugh, receiving no answer, imagined him to be weighing the substance of his narration, and therefore, bidding him not to worry his brain too much, offered him half an hour to fix upon what should be done, and returned quietly to his own room. Here he sat, counting the minutes, with his watch in his hand, till the time stipulated arrived. But finding Dr. Orkbourne let it pass without any notice, he again took the trouble of going back to his apartment. He then eagerly asked what plan he had formed. Dr. Orkbourne, much incommoded by this second interruption, coldly begged to know his pleasure. Sir Hugh, with great patience, though much surprise, repeated the whole, word for word, over again, but the history was far too long for Dr. Orkbourne, whose attention, after the first sentence or two, was completely restored to his Greek quotation, which he was in the act of transcribing when Sir Hugh re-entered the room. The baronet, at length, more categorically said, "'Don't be so shy of speaking out, Doctor, though I am afraid, by your silence, you've rather a notion poor Indiana will never get on, which perhaps makes you think it not worth while contradicting Mrs. Margland. Come, speak out. Is that the case with the poor girl?' "'Yes, sir,' answered Dr. Orkborne, with great composure, though perfectly unconscious of the proposition to which he assented. "'Lack a day, if I was not always afraid she had rather return to being a dunce, so it's your opinion it won't do, then?' "'Yes, sir, again,' replied the doctor, his eye the whole time fastened upon the passage which occupied his thoughts. "'Why, then, we are all at a stand again. This is worse than I thought for. So the poor dear girl has really no head? Hey, doctor, do speak, pray. Don't mind vexing me. Say so at once if you can't help thinking it.' Another extorted, "'Yes, sir,' completely overset Sir Hugh, who, imputing the absent and perplexed air with which it was pronounced to an unwillingness to give pain, shook him by the hand, and, quitting the room, ordered his carriage and set off for Etherington. "'Oh, brother,' he cried, "'Indiana's the best girl in the world, as well as the prettiest, but do you know Dr. Orkborne says she has got no brains, so there's an end of that scheme. However, I have now thought of another that will settle all differences.' Mr. Tyrold hoped it was an entire discontinuance of all pupilage and tutorship, and that Dr. Orkborne might henceforth be considered as a mere family friend. "'No, no, my dear brother, no, tis a better thing than that, as you shall hear. You must know I have often been concerned to think how glum poor Claremont will look when he hears of my will in favour of Eugenia, which was my chief reason in my own private mind for not caring to see him before he went abroad. But I have made myself quite easy about him now by resolving to set little Eugenia upon learning the classics.' Eugenia, and of what benefit will that prove to Claremont? Why, as soon as she grows a little old, that is to say, a young woman, I intend, with your good will and my sister's, to marry her to Claremont. 
Mr. Tyrold smiled, but declared his entire concurrence if the young people, when they grew up, wished for the alliance. As to that, said he, I mean to make sure work by having them educated exactly to fit one another. I shall order Claremont to think of nothing but his studies till the proper time, and as to Eugenia, I shall make her a wife after his own heart by the help of this gentleman, for I intend to bid him teach her just like a man, which, as she's so young, may be done from the beginning, the same as if she was a boy. He then enumerated the advantages of this project, which would save Claremont from all disappointment, by still making over to him his whole fortune, with a wife ready formed into a complete scholar for him into the bargain. He then enumerated the advantages of this project, which would save Claremont from all disappointment, by still making over to him his whole fortune, with a wife ready formed into a complete scholar for him into the bargain. It would also hinder Eugenia from being a prey to some sop for her money, who being no relation could not have so good a right to it, and it would prevent any affront to Dr. Orkbourne by keeping him a constant tight task in hand. Mr. Tyrold forbore to chagrin him with any strong expostulation, and he returned, therefore, to Cleves in full glee. He repaired immediately to the apartment of the doctor, who, only by what was now said, was apprised of what had passed before— Somewhat, therefore, alarmed to understand that the studies of Indiana were to be relinquished, he exerted all the alacrity in his power for accepting his new little pupil, not from any idea of preference, for he concluded that incapacity of Indiana to be rather that of her sex than of an individual, but from conceiving that his commodious abode at Cleves depended upon his retaining one scholar in the family. Eugenia, therefore, was called, and the lessons were begun." The little girl, who was naturally of a thoughtful turn, and whose state of health deprived her of most childish amusements, was well contented with the arrangement, and soon made a progress so satisfactory to Dr. Orkbourne, that Sir Hugh, letting his mind now rest from all other schemes, became fully and happily occupied by the prosecution of his last suggestion. CHAPTER Seven: LOST LABOUR From this period, the families of Etherington and Cleves lived in the enjoyment of uninterrupted harmony and repose, till Eugenia, the most juvenile of the set, had attained her fifteenth year. Sir Hugh then wrote to Leipzig, desiring his nephew Linmere to return home without delay. Not that I intend, he said to Mr. Tyrold, marrying them together at this young age, Eugenia being but a child, except in point of Latin. Though I assure you, my dear brother, she's the most sensible of the whole, poor Indiana being nothing to her, for all her prettiness. But the thing is, the sooner Claremont comes over, the sooner they may begin forming the proper regard. The knowledge of this projected alliance was by no means confined to Sir Hugh and Mr. and Mrs. Tyrold. It was known throughout the family, though never publicly announced, and understood from her childhood by Eugenia herself, though Mrs. Tyrold had exerted her utmost authority to prevent Sir Hugh from apprising her of it in form. It was nevertheless the joy of his heart to prepare the young people for each other, and his scheme received every encouragement he could desire, from the zeal and uncommon progress in her studies made by Eugenia, which most happily corresponded with all his injunctions to Leipzig for the application and acquirements of Claremont. Thus circumstanced, it was a blow to him the most unexpected to receive from the young bridegroom-elect, in answer to his summons home, a petition to make the tour of Europe while yet on the continent. What? cried Sir Hugh, and is this all his care for us? After so many years' separation from his kin and kind, has he no natural longings to see his native land, no yearnings to know his own relations from strangers? Eugenia, notwithstanding her extreme youth, secretly applauded and admired a search of knowledge she would gladly have participated, though she was not incurious to see the youth she considered as her destined partner for life, and to whom all her literary labours had been directed, for the never-failing method of Sir Hugh to stimulate her if she was idle had been to assure her that, unless she worked harder, her cousin Claremont would eclipse her. 
She had now acquired a decided taste for study, which, however unusual for her age, most fortunately rescued from weariness or sadness the sedentary life, which a weak state of health compelled her to lead. This induced her to look with pleasure upon Claremont as the object of her emulation, and to prosecute every plan for her improvement, with that vigour which accompanies a pursuit of our own choice, the only labour that asks no relaxation. Steady occupations such as these kept off all attention to her personal misfortunes, which Sir Hugh had strictly ordered should never be alluded to, first, he said, for fear they should vex her, and next, lest they should make her hate him for being their cause. Those incidents, therefore, from never being named, glided imperceptibly from her thoughts, and she grew up as unconscious as she was innocent, that though born with a beauty which surpassed that of her lovely sisters, disease and accident had robbed her of that charm ere she knew she possessed it. But neither disease nor accident had power over her mind, there, in its purest proportions, moral beauty preserved its first energy. The equanimity of her temper made her seem, though a female, born to be a practical philosopher. Her abilities and her sentiments were each of the highest class, uniting the best adorned intellects with the best principled virtues. The dissatisfaction of Sir Hugh with his nephew reached not to prohibition. His consent was painful, but his remittances were generous, and Claremont had three years allowed him for his travels through Europe. Yet this permission was no sooner granted than the baronet again became dejected. Three years appeared to him to be endless. He could hardly persuade himself to look forward to them with expectation of life, and all the learned labours he had promoted seemed vain and unpromising, ill requiting his toils and still less answering his hopes. Even the studious turn of Eugenia, hitherto his first delight, he now thought served but to render her unsociable, and the time she devoted to study he began to regret as lost to himself. Nor could he suggest any possible consolation for his drooping spirits, till it occurred to him that Camilla might again enliven him. This idea, and the order for his carriage, were the birth of the same moment, and upon entering the study of Mr. Tyrold, he abruptly exclaimed, "'My dear brother, I must have Camilla back. Indiana says nothing to amuse me, and Eugenia is so bookish, I might as well live with an old woman, which God forbid I should object to, only I like Camilla better.' This request was by no means welcome to Mr. Tyrold, and utterly distasteful to his lady. Camilla was now just seventeen years of age, and attractively lovely, but of a character that called for more attention to its development than to its formation, though of a disposition so engaging that affection kept pace with watchfulness, and her fond parents knew as little for their own sakes as for hers how to part with her. Her qualities had a power which, without consciousness how, or consideration why, governed her whole family. The airy thoughtlessness of her nature was a source of perpetual amusement, and, if sometimes her vivacity raised a fear for her discretion, the innocence of her mind reassured them after every alarm. The interest which she excited served to render her the first object of the house. It was just short of solicitude, yet kept it constantly alive. Her spirits were volatile, but her heart was tender. Her gaiety had a fascination, her persuasion was irresistible. To give her now up to Sir Hugh seemed to Mrs. Tyrold rather impossible than disagreeable, but he was too urgent with his brother to be wholly refused. She was granted him, therefore, as a guest, for the three ensuing months, to aid him to dissipate his immediate disappointment from the procrastinated absence of Claremont. Sir Hugh received back his first favourite with all the fond glee of a ductile imagination, which in every new good sees a refuge from every past or present evil. But as the extremist distaste of all literature now succeeded those sanguine views which had lately made it his exclusive object, the first words he spoke upon her arrival were, to inform her she must learn no Latin, and the first step which followed her welcome was a solemn charge to Dr. Orkborn that he must give her no lessons. The gaiety, the spirit, the playful good humour of Camilla had lost nothing of their charm by added years. 
though her understanding had been sedulously cultivated and her principles modelled by the pure and practical tenets of her exemplary parents the delight of sir hugh in regaining her consisted not merely of the renovation of his first prejudice in her favour it was strengthened by the restoration it afforded his own mind to its natural state and the relief of being disburthened of a task he was so ill-calculated to undertake as superintending in any sort intellectual pursuits End of chapter 7